I, I didn't see writing as a career. I saw it as a vocation, which meant I had to be called. This is sort of a little bit about this notion of writing as a secular, spiritual pursuit. I didn't write them for money. I didn't write them for the business of books. And none of that. And so I'm hoping that there are some readers and say, wow, this taught me something I needed to know, or this made me laugh, or this pleased me, or I heard the music that this writer was trying to create. Thanks for being here. Today, I had the pleasure of connecting with fellow surfer and ocean lover, Thomas Farber. Tom Farber is a master in capturing the essence of life's intimate moments. He's a master of the epigram, condensing the most profound into beautiful vignettes. He's a winner of countless prizes, an author of 20 books of fiction and creative nonfiction, and has just published two new collections, Acting My Age and Penultimates. Jetting between Hawaii and Berkeley, California, where he teaches, we connect today about his latest meditations on life, death, writing, the sea, women, Diamond Head, and much, much more. All with humor, humility, gravitas, and wisdom. I'm grateful for Tom's enduring lessons. Thanks for being here. So I was at the library here in Oahu, and I just was looking through the shelves and I saw your acting my age book. And I read that yes. a few months ago and I loved it. And then you told me about your new book and I connected. And so thank you for, you know, inspiring me. And, but my first question I was going to ask, just looking through photos of your past and your, I wanted to know about your uniform. There's a period when you shift your clothing to black. So I wanted to understand yeah. what, yeah, if that's was, consciousness. That was theater. Yeah, uh, uh, I was playing the writer. And in Europe, uh, writers wore black. Uh, New York City at that time, in the uh, 60s and 70s, writers mostly wore black. And uh, it seemed to suit me. Uh, so I went with it and I pretty much stayed with it. Later, uh, I got into Cuban music and dance. But even then, I think I wore black. And, you know, uh, it's, I've been faithful to my costume. Uh, you can't go naked in this veil of tears, as you know, uh, or most places. And so uh, I, I stayed with it. I'm just actually uh, getting some T-shirts made up um, that uh, say penultimates on the front, the cover of uh, the title of the new book. And on the back is the Wayne Levin photo uh, that's uh, on the cover. Yeah. So are you, I mean, maybe going to that cognitive choice. Are you still playing the role of the writer or what role are you playing now with your latest book? Yeah, I think um, black is simply uh, comfortable to me, though uh, I have some Tahitian t-shirts. You know, uh, my wife, among other things, is in some halaos, uh, Tahitian dance halaos. And uh, so uh, I'll go with the colors that they they have uh, in order to be able to suggest that I know something about Tahitian dance. Yeah, It's my wife, though, who is the dance was curious about this change in tone between acting my age and penultimates. I don't know if you 
maybe you can explore that or where your mental state was or well so it was my great good fortune that uh uh press uh which really means manoa journal which was uh under the great uh uh, editor-in-chief uh, Frank Stewart for 30-something years. So I had just had another major surgery at the end of 2019 as I was finishing acting my age, and I survived it. And uh, the uh, pandemic also then began. I got out of the hospital just in time. So uh, I sent the manuscript uh, to uh Frank Stewart and uh, to Pat Mosway simply to read it and, and see what they thought. And Frank wanted to do it as uh, an issue of Manoa Journal, which would be a book, the book that you saw. Uh, and they did an amazing job. You know, those photographs of my, uh, my longtime friend and collaborator, Wayne Levin, and my friend Jeff Fricker's photographs of the ruined uh, sugar mill at uh, Amakuapoko on Maui. Um, so that, that was just a, a great blessing. So that would so if I finished the book in early 2020 and it came out at the start of 2021, by then I was a writer again, you know, nothing else to be doing. So I, I started uh, what became Penultimates. But now COVID was on my mind and everyone's mind. And also there, there are things toward the end of um, acting my age, like uh, a, a quote from Wallace Stevens, the famous American poet, who said, um, each person completely touches us with what he is and as he is in the stale grandeur of annihilation. Well, when I read that in my reading toward acting my age, I thought this is over the top, you know. The words were too big, stale grandeur and so on. And also, we don't know that each of us doesn't know everyone else and so on. But then I thought about it more, and I realized that a lot of my friends were ill. A lot of my friends uh, were in trouble uh, with aging. Uh, and so now the Wallace Stevens began to ring more true. Each person completely touches us with what he is and as he is in the stale grandeur of annihilation. So that was part of my mood as I went on from acting my age, because I'm a writer. What do writers do? They go on. Samuel Beckett said, uh, I can't go on, I'll, I'll go on, right? he wrote. So the mood was darker, I think, uh, in in penultimates. Penultimate means the next to last, right? And the subtitle is the now and the not yet. So I was having fun with all of this, you know, with being my age, with acting my age. But uh, the terrain was getting darker. Um, you can see the difference in the two things I do to Donald Trump in acting my age. I, I merely, uh, I don't wish him ill, I, I simply have him alone on a beach in Hawaii wearing a full wetsuit and a wetsuit cap and goggles alone. He's utterly alone on the beach, this man who's never alone. No phone, no retainers, and he's on the beach staring out at what Dan Duane calls the inhuman past. And what happens to Donald Trump in acting my age? He, he shits himself, you know, if you remember that, because he's terrified being alone. And, and of course, like all humans, he's going to die. I'm not wishing him ill, but it's his fate as it's the fate of everyone. Okay, but in an ultimate side, do something quite different. 
uh, to Donald Trump in in a similar chapter, and I don't know if I should should say what it is. It's well, I, I know what it is, but maybe we'll leave it for uh, future readers to find out. Yeah. As a cliffhanger. I was going to argue that. I mean, I'm just thinking of the poem with the which I was rereading this morning about the uh, monarch butterflies and how yeah. with the interaction with the Manuel character and how he says forgiveness first, and you say acceptance, and there's a I wonder if you've your political. Most of your books I've read before weren't at all political. I, I felt like they were just you're more interested in the female form, love, male female relationships. Penultimate, there's kind of an anger towards Trump, towards politics, towards social media. But the monarch poem, you have this forgiveness, acceptance. So maybe you can talk about that or how you f find all this fitting into. I'm a child of the '60s, right? So the Vietnam War. I still, uh, I won't ever forgive uh, um, those Harvard people. Uh, I was, you know, I was a student at Harvard, and uh, they all uh, in the '60s they migrated to Washington and advanced the Vietnam War, Henry Kissinger, and so on. So, I'm a skeptic about power, political power, and government, and that's been a constant in my life. Even though I teach at UC Berkeley, uh, I'm probably a moderate in this town. Uh, there are people well to my left. I, I have political concerns, that's for sure. So I just wondered if, if you, as you grow older, do you have more of a, a forgiveness to that past or an acceptance? Or what's your relationship to that power? I think there's a part of me um, that feels that um, people are helpless. Uh, they, they can't control themselves. And then there's another part of me that feels, being my parents' child, that we have to make ourselves as, be the best that we can be, right? And so uh, I think I probably move, like many people, between uh, both poles. I, I think it's very hard to, um, you know, let's say I, uh, this past spring, uh, I taught a, a graduate nonfiction writing seminar. Uh, it's a wonderful seminar, 10 students and grown-ups, you know, age early 20s to early 40s from all different fields, very talented people. One of the things about writing memoir uh, is that uh, people imagine they're telling the true story. Well, it might be true at the time to them, but of course our memories are very fallible. Our sense of outrage is usually more easily directed at others than at ourselves. I would say as one gets older, if one is not embittered, one becomes in a way more tolerant of the situation that others find themselves in because they're human and how could they help it? I suppose that means that at some point I should have a great sympathy for Donald Trump, but I'm not there yet. Do you have a, a spiritual practice at all? I'm curious about that and your spiritual background. You talk a lot about your mother and your father, but the spiritual basis is not that clear to me. Well. My father was a Christ figure. He was an extraordinarily famous physician. He built the first hospital in the world for children with cancer, and he never took a private patient. He was the child of immigrants. He was a poor boy, blah, 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 an amazing human being. Uh, he never talked about uh, any spiritual practice. My parents were Jews, and they were publicly clear that they were Jews, but they were very secular Jews. So the example I had was of someone doing extraordinary things, uh, celebrated for his compassion and kindness, but he had no, what shall I say, he had no rap about it. He, he wasn't uh, 
form, giving a formula. He was simply, you might say, living by example. So I would say that uh, in terms of larger spiritual practices, also, when my father would get yet another award, and he didn't care about awards, he just was doing what he felt he, he needed to do. He would always, in those years, in the 50s and 60s in Boston, he would be introduced by a rabbi, priest, and a minister who would talk interminably, introducing him. And they weren't as good, of, they weren't manifesting goodness as he had. And so I think I grew up very secular, though my mother loved and, and retold um, stories from the Old and New Testament. She loved the stories. But they didn't want to be in any organized religion. And I suppose um, that when I came to California in the mid-60s, uh, as Buddhism was taking hold uh, everywhere, uh, I suppose I had a chance to, to join into that in some organized way. But it wasn't for me. I think I would say that in a way that writing it's not my religion exactly, but it's my spiritual pursuit to try to do it as well as I can. That's an odd way to put it, but I think it's close to true. I don't uh, need anyone to follow me in my writing, and I don't organize it. But I would say I'm trying to say true things to people who are in need of hearing it, if they want. Do you have any relationship what is your relationship in terms of fear towards death? I mean, after your heart surgery and I mean, being in Berkeley, it's just funny because I interviewed someone who was also a secular Jew and he was telling me about the, you know, as he grew older, he really had a kind of awareness of consciousness, even as a physicist. So I'm curious where you think you're going to be going, you know, in the next 20, 30 years or what you think hopefully will happen next. My father was a pathologist by training. And what did he do? Uh, uh, he did all of the autopsies of children at Children's Hospital next to Harvard Medical School, where he was a professor. So he saw death all the time. I never once heard my father or mother talk about anything beyond this life. They didn't have a, um, a rhetoric about it, even. It just didn't come up as a subject. And I think I inherited that um, unthinkingly that uh, and without arguing it one way or the other. I mean, uh, I, I don't have any firm convictions here, but I would say that uh, trying to, to live in this life well is a full-time job. My mother said, uh, some kids came to see my mother, you know, who wrote many books. They asked her if, if she was afraid of dying. And she said, uh, well, she, she hoped to make as graceful an exit as possible. But that's often not given to us. Often in old age, in our culture, particularly people suffer, and they suffer a long time. And the people caring for them suffer a long time. So my, I would say my interest is more on that end of things, the end of life, rather than on death and what happens after death. Though I know that subject intrigues a lot of people, and I'm not against them being intrigued by it. Well, the reason I bring it up is that you had that in Acting My Age, you visit the ruins, which I thought was one of your best pieces in that yes. collection. And I think the last line was about the banyan tree yes. looking back on your mortality. So I, I just wonder how that fits into everything. Wow. Well, you know, I just reread that piece. One of the things about uh, 
getting older is that you can't hold all of your books in your mind all the time. There are too many words, too many books, 20-something books, you know. But I reread the Ruins piece. So Jeffrey Fricker, a great photographer, I had met him in here in California, and we had a shared interest, of course, in, in Hawaii. He sent me to Maui in 1999 to go to the Hamakua Popo Mill, the ruins. I was amazed by how powerful, how powerfully I was affected by that, that trip. In the end, the, the banyan tree, as it over the banyan tree, as it or trees, it's a little hard to say with banyans what's going on. They overgrow the mill, the ruined mill. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to start thinking of mortality because that was once a powerful mill and had hundreds of work, workers and foremen and machinery. Uh, but look at it now. It's just, it's an empty building uh, with banyan trees overgrowing it. As I reached the conclusion of that piece, I kind of imagined that, like Jeffrey Fricker, in a way, who was so obsessed with the, with the mill for, for years, he kept going back to photograph it again and again. Uh, I, I began to think that, oddly, Jeffrey Fricker, having sent me to the Hamakua Poco Mill, put me in touch with the banyan tree, uh, and then our fate uh, was shared. It, it wasn't a flimsy notion. It was deeply felt. Yes. But that's as religious as I get. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, yeah, I would say the Aina there is uh, touching base with you. So, which maybe connects me to my next question is, maybe you can just iterate your history with Hawaii. I know originally from your Boston, then to Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. What brings you to Hawaii and Polynesia? So what happens is uh, friends invite me over to Hawaii in 71. I see it for the first time. I'm a water person, but I've never seen warm tropical ocean. I saw a great body surfer, one guy just out there. And you know that was like a revelation. But I couldn't be in the ocean all day long in Hawaii. And uh, I'd be in the library, you know, trying to figure out you know, where I was and what the history was here. And of course, I was a Bostonian. When you're in Hawaii, you start seeing the architecture in the churches of the Boston I grew up in. And that was a, a, that influence, that Protestant missionary influence was, of course, something uh, when I was young, you, you uh, didn't like because uh, on Sundays, the whole city closed down tight, the blue laws, the religious laws. So I was a little startled to be in the tropics and seeing missionary Boston. And then, of course, being a Bostonian myself, carrying some of that uh, karma, you might say. So then uh, other friends had a place on the North Shore of Maui, just a shack, really. And I was able to go there, you know, frequently and just spend time. And then I got into surfing. As you know, that becomes an obsession of its own. And so for, for some years, uh, I would spend months at a time in Hawaii between books, uh, particularly after I'd finish a book. I, I never wanted to go right on to another one. I wanted to wait and see if there was going to be another one. I, I didn't see writing as a career. I saw it as a vocation, which meant I had to be called. This is sort of a little bit about this notion of writing as a secular, spiritual pursuit. I only wrote books when I was called. I, I didn't write them for money. I didn't write them for the business of books. And none of that. So I'm surfing all the time in Hawaii. And then 
a, a writer in Berkeley tells me that there's a visiting writer position at the University of Hawaii. And uh, I had taught as a visiting writer at UC Santa Cruz and at UC Berkeley. Every five years, I would teach for a semester or two. That was it. I didn't want to climb that ladder of academia. I met with the, uh, at the University of Hawaii, and they brought me in as visiting distinguished writer. Well, that changed things in Hawaii for me because before then, my community was really uh, the beach and people on the beach. Most of them never asked me what I, I do. Uh, people weren't interested. I, I wasn't particularly interested in the jobs they had. I was interested in surfing in the ocean. And that's what we talked about. But now I was at UH. And then I was at the East-West Center as a visiting fellow. So now I was in the fabric of the community in a different way, though I was still surfing. And while teaching at, at UH, I was mentoring and meeting the first wave of post-colonial Pacific Island writers, people from Tonga, Rotuma, Samoa, Fiji. Inevitably, then I went down to their world to learn more about what that was like. And, and I still have great friends you know, from that part of the world. Vilsoni um, Haraniko, a Rotuman, a little Polynesian place uh, north of Fiji. He's a professor at the UH now. Epele Hawafa, the great Tongan writer, a marvelous satirist. So, you know, my life was changed by that connection to the University of Hawaii and the East-West Center. And it, it put me in a different place being in Hawaii. I was still a Haole. I was still a mainland Haole, but I was getting in deeper, you might say. Talking about going deeper, maybe you can parallel that to your scuba diving and how old were you when you started surfing? And did you ever surf when you returned to San Francisco or Berkeley? Or? No, no, I hate cold water. Okay. Uh, I, when I was a kid, I was skinny. And uh, the, the water uh, in the lakes in New Hampshire was cold, really cold. Uh, I, I've surfed almost never in, uh, I've surfed a little bit in Santa Cruz, uh, but because when I taught there, but I, I really don't like cold water and I don't like the getting into a full wetsuit and all of that stuff. I'm talking to the people in the English department at UH, and I see the first issue of Manoa Journal. It's a beautiful literary journal that Frank Stewart edited for 35 years. And, and he's an amazing man of letters. You ought to interview him sometime. He lives there in Manoa Valley. So I see they have uh, pictures of Wayne uh, by Wayne Levin. So I find out this is pre-internet, 1990. So I find out where he, he lives. He's visiting his parents down in Hawaii Kai. He lives on the Big Island. And I go to see him, and he and his wife, being starving artists at that time, they're hoping I maybe am going to buy a print. But no, what I'm saying to him is, I want to work with you. Uh, because I had finished another book, a book about being a writer, called Compared to What? I didn't know what was next, if anything, because I thought I might be saying farewell to the life of being a writer. I was weighing its qualities either to continue or to let it go. There's a lot of beautiful things you can do in the world. You don't have to be, just be a writer. So one day I'm surfing off of Diamond Head and at first light, there's nobody there. It's incredible, a city of a million people and I'm all alone. I'm rising and falling on the swell. And it occurs to me that maybe I'm the fixed object and Diamond Head is rising and falling 
And I said, whoa, that's an interesting notion. I said, maybe I could write about that. And that starts the first of my water books, which is called On Water. So when I go to see Wayne, but I'm the reason I'm going to see him is because I've had that idea. I'm going to write about water. I've seen Wayne's photographs. Mostly at that time, it's all color photography of surfing. Marvelous photography. Wayne is doing black and white in the water photography. Maybe the only person around doing such a thing. So I see Wayne and I say, you're a great artist. We ought to team up. And we do. And out of that come three collaborations. Uh, the first book is called, I'll never forget it. This is what turning 80 is like. Uh, <laughs> that's very funny. Uh, Through a Liquid Mirror. And then the second book is called o Other Oceans. And the third book is called Akule. But then Wayne and I have, as you can see from the jackets, uh, photos from my books, uh, I call on Wayne all the time because he's a great artist. And uh, he's someone you should talk to, too. He's over on the big island. But that first time that we worked together, I go over to his place at Honanao, above uh, Kielokokua Bay, and we head out in kayaks. Uh, and uh, it's very low budget, but we're, we're spending time with dolphins and whales. No, no, no expensive gear, just a lot of time in the water. And that's when I get into scuba. Uh, but I don't like scuba because I don't like gear in the water. I like surfing because it's so free of gear. I had been uh, a captain of a 31-foot and owner of a 31-foot ocean-going trimaran. When you don't have a lot of money and you have an ocean-going vessel, it means that you're not just the captain, but you're the slave, constantly working on it. And so when I let the boat go, then I never wanted anything with a lot of gear. Uh, and But I, I didn't. I did get into scuba in order to be with Wayne. And then we became faculty on dive boats and got sent by magazines, you know, all over the place. Uh, so one thing leads to another, it, you know, in the arts, but also in life. And none of these things were planned. I didn't plan to become a writer. I didn't set out to become a writer. A door opened and I went through it. And then I thought about it. And then I, well, I'll try it again. But some people, you know, are very highly motivated to become something, one thing, to get rich or to be president of the United States. I, I wasn't clear like that, uh, but I had some great good fortune. A door opened, I went through it, and then, oh, maybe I could try this again. Parallel surfing perfectly, right? You go out there, you don't know what you're going to get. Some days big, some days small. Mm -hmm. So I think that's... Do you, I mean, your your writing style is very different than Paul Thoreau, but have you ever met him or talked to him? Because he's another ocean lover on the North Shore. No, uh, no uh, he's not a surfer. <laughs> no, he's a can canoe, canoe, uh, canoeer, kayaker. He's a kayaker, yeah. No, uh, I, I've not met him. Uh, I, You know, I love to read writers, uh, but I don't have this enormous desire to meet them unless it happened, unless it's meant to be. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's something else you share with Paul Thoreau because he he shares the same sentiment in his books that he never wants to meet other writers. You know? Yeah. yeah the um, uh, in any case, uh, uh, you know, I read, I read as much as I can, and uh, so I've read him. But meeting writers is a different thing, and uh, I love New York City when I was young, but I I couldn't live there because the the book business was there. So you were always meeting writers and they were talking about money 
and they were talking about status. I didn't want to know any writers. I wanted writers to maybe to know my books, but that was different, you know. Uh, I, I was into writing, and I wasn't interested in the literary life. Uh, though over time, uh, I got into that as well. But it 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 happened more uh, organically, I would say. It wasn't a drive. My next question is. Who wrote the book of love? Is that the one in yeah. Polish? Yeah. Is that about your uh, your catamaran? So the, is that catamaran? I didn't know you had a catamaran. Or yeah. Like, and a thirty one foot a thirty one foot ocean going trimaran. No. Who wrote the book of love? Is a book of stories about men and women in and out of love in the seventies. And but there uh, is I, one at a boat dock. And there's I, I remember I read that. Yeah, story that's a guy who has children. Yeah. He he's he's so I'm down in, at the in the Berkeley Marina once again. You know, repairing something on my damn boat. And uh, yeah, you know. I had friends who loved to help me work on the boat, but that was different than being responsible for it. Um, so I'm talking to this guy, and it turns out in this one one piece about men and women, uh, the book's about men and women in and out of love, it turns out he's now got a second crop of kids. And I ask him why. And he says, oh, he says, these things just happen. You know, you don't, you don't know why they happen. And that struck me, you know, uh, that at that moment, uh, it just was a, a funny thing. So I made it, you know, I made a story of it. Uh, when I when I sold the boat, I was so relieved <laughs> to be free of the burden compared to a surfboard. I'll tell you, it's, even though it was a trimaran, so it surfed the waves, right? But I was, I had a very romantic vision. I thought, you know, sailing with freedom. Well, it's more complicated than that, right? <laughs> well. Talking about freedom, maybe you can talk about minimalism. And you have the famous cottage, I think, in Berkeley that I think is on the cover of one of your books. And I remember when I took your workshop, you had an exercise where you had to describe everything in a room. And, yes. And I enjoyed that exercise. So maybe I'm just curious about... That's why I asked you about the clothing. There's a choice in aesthetics. So maybe you can... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the... Uh... Minimalism. Yeah, so the cottage in Berkeley. Uh, so a guy named Peter Conrad, a writer, uh, had a book title I like, uh, Where I Fell to Earth. And he's just it's a book about the cities he's lived in, Where I Fell to Earth. So I fell to earth in Berkeley. I mean, I'd been in Berkeley in the, in the uh, 60s, and then I was traveling, and I came back to Berkeley. And this time, as it turns out, I stayed. When I taught in, in 1980, I lived in Berkeley, but I didn't know anything about uh, the university the English department at all. I went up there, uh, I taught at Santa Cruz, and uh, I published three books. I had some, won some fellowships, amazingly, all of this kind of extraordinary good fortune. And the chair said, um, you, you live in Berkeley, who do you know in the department? And I said, nobody. And he said, but you live here. I said, yeah, because uh, I wasn't trying to be in a literary scene. I was just writing books. And uh, so he hired me, and that's when I first taught at Cal as a visitor in uh, 1980, 81 kind of thing. But then in the mid-90s, I had been away from teaching for years. They invited me, and we worked out something that could be ongoing and still allow me to be a writer. Well, I'm just curious about when you have this movement towards, your writing becomes more minimalistic. You have an yeah. interest in epigrams and shortening, simplifying toning it down, everything becomes more prose-like. So I'm curious where that parallels with your life. 
movements, maybe your interest in women or just whatever's happening outside the mood. There's a, the second shift of your life seems to be more minimalistic. Now, one of the, the epigrams, probably my, my interest in them. So I'm making notes. Uh, writers often make notes. I'm making notes and now I see some things that seem to me very clever. A man sitting in a cafe watching two young women walk past faster than he could run after them. Now, to me, that's very funny. Because, so that's a, a, a middle-aged guy sitting in a cafe, right? And that, that's one of my early epigrams. Well, it wasn't an epigram. It was just a one-liner. But then I sort of got interested in that. And I said, oh, other people must have done this. And I start reading them. And of course, the list of, of epigrammists and aphorists uh, is, is long. And so, so now I start seeing that there's a form that might uh, free me of some of the weight, the, the narrative weight of um, fiction or my kind of creative nonfiction and just go right at a human foible uh, or something. And that's what gets me started. And as it, as it turns out, I've done many books of the epigrammatic, uh, and always with an essay about how I got to that and why. I, I couldn't just do epigrams, but they're a lot of fun. They're kind of wicked, a wicked pleasure. For instance, a guy named George Lichtenberg, 18th century writer, he said uh, someone he, he must not have liked how someone responded to one of his books and he said uh, a book is a kind of a mirror when a monkey looks in an apostle does not look back out <laughs> well, well you see any writer any human being who's tried to give something to someone else of course has the sensation of having been undervalued if i were to write his epigram now i would say a book is a kind of uh, a Rorschach test. What you see is uh, who you are. Now, that's not true. That is, that's not the only truth, any more than what Lichtenberg said was the only truth. But it sheds a little light, particularly if you're feeling vindictive. right? So the epigrams were a way for me to comment on foible, uh, other people's foible, but also my own foible. Because, of course, I'm implicated in everything. Uh, I write, like all writers are implicated in everything they write. Yeah. Tom, uh, going back to the cafe scene with you sitting with the two younger ladies racing How? by, could you talk about your role about writing of, as a male and masculinity, sex, and how that's changed across your career? Because I think in your latest book, you have that wonderful epigram or snapshot of the guy with the 96-year-old uh, with the younger wife direction. So I'm just curious how you, you're, you know, you, a lot of your books have sexualized covers. Sure. Relationship with women. So maybe we can go there and see this bigger topic of love, romance, the body. Well, I, I don't know about other people, but um, when I was young, it was all blind need and not much awareness of, of the dreams really of the, the others I was spending time with. Uh, that's not so unusual, I guess. But also, the the 1950s and I grew up in were really primitive. A lot of people didn't know a lot of uh, that's available for them to know now. But there it was. Well, who wrote the Book of Love? 
which uh, came out in 1977, is my effort to come to terms with the change in the game that the 60s had created. Now, there were all new kinds of paradigms about male and female, very different from the 1950s. And so that is a book uh, of stories trying to kind of say, well, this is where, what it's like now, okay? But I wrote that book you know, while I was safe in the bosom of a wonderful relationship with an amazing woman. So I could look at the dark side of love's moon because I was safe and sound and being cared for, right? Uh, life went on. Let's say in uh, the late 90s, I'm writing a book that turns out to be called The Beholder, which is a story of an older writer, uh, uh, an older male, middle-aged male, a writer with a younger woman, a PhD, young academic, and their tempestuous love affair. Um, that's the only time uh, I ever tried to describe physical love, but I really went, went, went into it. Before, you know, uh, it didn't interest me to try to describe the relationship of, of male and female bodies, for instance, but in The Beholder, I went for it. And I was very, very lucky to see that book uh, published. That was an obsession, a, a great, a great obsession. And it's a, it's a, a, a book about heartbreak, right? It's a book. It's a book about love and reproach. Uh, Tom, and then in your latest book, what's your relationship to love and the body now? I mean, because is there a bit of envy with the ninety-six-year-old, or is there a bit of oh um, no brothership? No, no, no. You're oh, happy for oh, him, or I'm just curious where that. Oh well. Uh, no, what I'm writing about is a doctor who has a patient uh, who calls his penis his. What, to, is it the carrot or what? what yeah, yeah, the carrot. He calls it his carrot, uh, and uh, he, he's a 96 year old, and he's in the locker room with his friends. So the story goes. Uh, this is a, a, a true story, uh, but he's uh, boasting about his sexual prowess in my in my short piece, the doctor who's younger, his doctor, the old man's doctor, tells his friends this story, maybe to cheer himself up, he's in middle age, that he too will have a sexual life at, at that age. And so, but to me, you know, the whole thing, it, the, the gist of the story really is that the doctor has to refrain from reminding the guy that he's going to die. People have an amazing capacity, uh, you know, to, to imagine that they're they're standing on the edge of a cliff and uh, their back is to the cliff and it's the Grand Canyon right below them and they don't see it. It's it's kind of, some people are like that and uh, so that's kind of where that story is at for me. But I I don't envy or one way or the other the the ninety six year old. I I would prefer not to be a ninety six year old fool. No, I thought it was humorous. I, I was just attracted to you know I went to Berkeley twenty years ago, so I'm curious what the environment now is like in terms of writing as a male, writing these type of relationships. I, I don't know what the politics of writing are, teaching writing, identity politics. How does that affect your work today as a writer? Uh, well, uh, like you said, would Beholder be published today, The Beholder? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> I think uh, it's an amazing book. I, I'm proud of it still. Uh, I have a former student who who, when the book came out and she read it, you know, she of course had to reconcile that with the image of uh, Professor Farber. <laughs> but, but professors are humans too, right? And and uh, 
I, I've been blessed, you know, in teaching that uh, people seem to have been uh, have tolerated what I had to say in the classroom and how I spoke to, about anything. Uh, I'm very fortunate. Um, I, it, 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 all universities seem to have a lot of talk about trigger warnings and safe spaces. I haven't really found that in my writing seminars. Uh, I found that uh, the students have a lot to say and, and they're willing to tolerate uh, what others have to say uh, as well. I mean, if you can only imagine what people see in a day on their phones or their computers, it's hard to believe that something in person would shock them. Well, I was going to parallel then to if you have any thoughts about anonymity as a writer for people who are publishing without their names. And then maybe the change in the publishing industry that you've seen over the last, over your career. Mm. Well, I, I was raised in a period when books were highly valued and uh, it was a romantic dream to become a writer. That world seems to be going in a hurry. Uh, the, the book market is very different. There's millions of self-published books. Uh, there's millions of blogs and all of you know, these wonderful things where people get to talk in different ways and reach vast audiences. Uh, um, all of that is strange to me. I don't do it. Uh, I'm not against it. It's just not, it's not my vehicle. Uh, but also the book industry is changing. It keeps consolidating. Uh, and um, that's not good for books when things it's it's not good for airlines when things consolidate and it's not good for books so i would say to have the dream of being a writer now for a young person uh, is a it must be different than it was when i was young though uh, as i say I, I didn't have that kind of dream but i was able once a door opened to keep finding another open door as for the the content of what people write or don't write i've never censored myself uh, I've always written exactly what I wanted to write. I've never sold a book until it was done. I've never shown it to an agent until it was done. And then it's taken it or leave it. Because otherwise, I'd rather be a hairdresser or teaching salsa or martial arts. Or, you know what I mean? There's a lot of ways to live. You don't have to eat shit just because you're in the arts. Yeah. You have an article or uh, epigram. You call it doom scrolling, which is a... You know, oh, 20s. yeah. I wish I'd come up with a term. Oh, yeah, it's a great term. But um, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts, if you've played around with artificial intelligence, and if you have any thoughts about writing with AI. No, I, I have friends who are um, like Cassandra, you know, who predicted the fall of Troy. They're saying it's the end of writing, and maybe it is because I'm more forgetful than I used to be. Uh, I'm more worried about the end of my memory than I am uh, about AI. Uh, you know, um, there are so many things uh, that could keep one up at night, and uh, and I'm not conversant with these technologies. You know, uh, it's just not on my uh, on my computer screen, really. Well, I think in one way it's quite liberating if you if you're open to it because it pushes writing towards being a pursuit of thinking. And like you said, the vocation for you for writing is to write, not for the career or whatever that comes maybe right. potentially with it. So the people who are fearful of it seem to be writing maybe for the wrong reasons or for the other reasons. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think the the, the idea of, of writing as career 
it's definitely going to be very different. My friends who are journalists, and I mean very good journalists, that world is disappearing. That's going down a drain in a hurry. There are just no more newspapers, basically, and uh, no more magazines paying uh, people. So that era, uh, after World War II, when there was a lot of money for people to go to universities, you know, all the veterans you know, could go to school, and the magazines that advertising, that was a whole different thing economically. The friends I have who are younger than I am, who are still writers, are, are watching that world disappear. I never looked to it myself uh, for income. I didn't look to, to books for income. If income came from books, I was happy, but that's, I, didn't, I didn't look to books to make me a living. I didn't look to teaching to make me a living. You know, I was willing to just go make a living if, if, it, if that's what it took. So is that the advice you give your students then, or what advice do you give contemporary? Advice, uh, well, uh, you know, Polonius's advice to Laertes, you know, in uh, in Hamlet, you know, he sounds like an old fart. This above all to thine own heart to be true. <laughs> I don't give advice like that. I just, I would say that um, the only reason to write is if you really need it. Who needs it? Often in my seminars, the very brightest students, that is at age, let's say, 20, 20, 20, 20 to 25, Often the very brightest and most talented or apparently talented students didn't become writers. Some of the other ones, the stupid ones, became the writers. And why is that? Because writers have to get made, you see, and then they have to persevere and they have to want writing more than they wanted something else, more than having a Porsche, probably, more than having a, you know, a rich, huge house, probably, more than job stability. Probably, you know, so that the smart ones, often the most apparently talented, turn out not to be the writers because being a writer takes, uh, a good writer takes some dogged persistence and often foolish, right? There's no, there's no prize at the end. Most writers are still trying to get better even at the end. Well, that's kind of foolish, right? If you're in the stock market and you're a trader, you're going to get you get rich, and then you're just rich. You don't have to do anything more. Writers are always trying to get better, uh, even at the end. Talking about the end, Tom, what you're working on now, because in the end of this penultimate or the penultimates, you're suggesting that there's going to be the ultimate. So, how is your writing process Easy. going? Easy. <laughs> right now, right now, I'm just trying to clear papers. You know, like I have boxes and boxes of, you know papers and I have my mother's papers. She published 35 books. I have lots of her papers. Uh, I have my father's medical papers. If I could get all of that cleared up, I tease at the end of penultimates that I, I would, my next book would then would have to be ultimates, right? What would that look like? Uh, I, I'm afraid. Uh, so Yain Kapilani Park, uh, a surf buddy of mine is one of the, in one of the many healing groups under the banyan tree. And he says, I said, what do you do there, you know? And he says, oh, you know, uh, we, we learn how to make amends. Well, that's quite a word, amends. So I, I never went to his group, and uh, I've never set out to make amends. But I suppose at age 80, um, one could write a book about amends. I tease, maybe, uh, I think I tease at the end of Penultimate, that for me, it could be a very long book. <laughs> it could be multi-volume, multi you know. It's one project 
I might try to take on, though I don't know. There's a difference in me. There's the writer in me, and then there's the human in me. That's how I see it. And the writer in me is he is drawn to all kinds of you know interesting things. The human in me sometimes doesn't want to do it. Uh, for instance, um, I, I haven't been back to Boston in years. The writer in me would like to go back to Boston to see it one more time and to register the differences between where I grew up and what it is now and all of that. The human in me doesn't want to make that trip. So the writer in me thinks a book of amends would be really a great project. But I don't know about the human. We'll see. You know, to be continued, right? Well, well, it's exciting talking to you because it seems that your mood is much better than I felt with penultimate. So it's exciting that you have this energy that you feel rejuvenated. I, I think maybe COVID was hard for you and the death of friends. Well, I felt COVID, it in your book. COVID was incredibly mean for, for me, but uh, I, I never got COVID. But the, the, the closing of the world was terrible, incredibly costly. I, I think also the the culmination of uh, seeing so many friends ill and suffering in this, in penultimates, I write about my friend Brad, three years, his dying, and it was such a normal story. That's the problem. It was just the most ordinary story in the world. And I couldn't save him. The greatest book title I ever saw by a writer named Leonard Michaels, a Berkeley writer, he's dead, he died young. Uh, the title was, I would have saved them if I could. And he's quoting Lord Byron, the 19th century bad boy poet. And Byron's watching a, a public execution. And he jots a note to his uh, a friend, a and gives it to a servant to take. Uh, I would have saved them if I could. Well, that's, as you get older, you see, there's a lot of things you can't save. And I couldn't save my friend, my, my friend Brad. He, he said I had done great. You know, I had helped him, but I couldn't save him. And I had a sister, my older sister just died. I couldn't save her. Uh, so that, you know, that affects your point of view. Then you have to decide what to make of it all. After my father died uh, at age 69, that was not so unusual back in his era. The stuff that saved me wasn't quite ready for him. Well, my mother, who had by then published many books, she then wrote a manuscript called Year of Reversible Loss, Year of Reversible Loss, which I saw into print many years later after she died. But it's about a person trying to make sense of the loss of the beloved and the fact that the seasons go right on. And they're beautiful because my mother loved every bit of the natural world in the New England she lived in her whole life. But still, if the seasons keep going on, what do we make of the loss of the beloved? Uh, is it like a cloud and it's simply matter changing form? My mother didn't try to answer that, but she kind of was trying to think it through. Yeah. So that, you know, uh, I don't feel, uh, I think of writing of the of penultimates as an act of love. That is, I made it as good as I can. I worked hard on it. I learned a lot by writing it and by the reading that is part of it. I tried to pass on my knowledge and my wit and my love of language and the music of words. Now, uh, you remember in Penultimate's, uh, what's his name? The uh, 
the French uh, poet. Yeah, Jean Cocteau says that the reader will have to set him free by by essentially being so faithful to the book that he replaces the writer who once wrote the book, who is no longer alive. So in that sense, I think I gave all my books uh, because I didn't care about the marketplace. I could have given a shit about the market. I just wrote what I wanted and I gave it my best. And so I'm hoping that there are some readers who will come to Penultimates uh, and say, wow, this taught me something I needed to know, or this made me laugh, or this pleased me, or I heard the music that this writer was trying to create. Yeah. So I don't see it as a, a dark book. I don't think of legacy, and I don't think of, I, I've never thought of uh, books like children, but people do. They, they do. Um, but I don't. I just see them as a house I built, and I tried to make it as beautiful a house, uh, and maybe it'll give shelter to others, kind of thing. Well, going back to the the banyan trees at the ruins, I think you're giving the, you know, the the basis for that next generation to grow from. That that banyan tree really it did register on me. You are quite right about that. Uh, and where that piece about the banyan tree, which includes the foreman. In the pickup truck? The, the Buddha, yes, I love, uh, yeah, the, the Buddha guy. Yeah, wonderful yeah, but but that's the world. The world is full of the crude, and then it's also true of the surprisingly uh, profound. And the fact that Jeff Fricker sends me to Maui to look at that mill and to write something, I didn't know what I was getting into, but it, it was a rich experience, and... and, and I'm a lucky man to have had it. Great. Well, Tom, um, is there anything else you want people to take away from your book or your writing or for the day? No, I, I, I want to thank you for, for you, you'll, if you go back and you, you read about Jean Hocteau, he's saying that the readers have to find the, the book and realize essentially the, uh, the spirit that was contained in the book that needs to be liberated by the reader. And you, because you came across acting my age, uh, you're that person. You, you've created this dynamic between the two of us, uh, for which I'm grateful. Very much. I okay. appreciate it. Thank yeah. you, Tom. Tom, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Very grateful. Sending you lots of love here from Oahu. So thank you very much. Good care. Okay. <laughs>